Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. Beyond cigarette smoking and beyond an individual person's life circumstances as far as their individual income and socioeconomic status, whether where someone lives, i.e. the neighborhood they live in, influences their risk of developing COPD. Today, Dr. Sidney Brayman and Robbie Callen join the podcast to discuss health inequities and disparities in COPD in this PV Roundup Special Spotlight. Boehringer Engelheim has 100 years of heritage in respiratory disease. Since 1921, they have emerged as a leader in this disease area, having launched several treatments in a range of respiratory conditions, including asthma, COPD, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and lung cancer. Their focus is on improving the quality of life of patients suffering from debilitating respiratory diseases and enabling them to maintain a more independent life. Learn more at bowringerengelheim.com. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not represent the views of Boehring or Engelheim or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Dr. Sidney Brayman, Professor Emeritus of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine in New York City. I'm also Professor Emeritus at the School of Medicine at Brown University. And I'm Ravi Calhan. I'm a professor of medicine and preventive medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Welcome, Ravi. I really look forward to our conversation. Uh, Ravi, some of the things that you've been looking into are, are really so important, so critical, and so neglected. So I'm really excited to have you discuss with us some of your ideas, some of your research, some of your thoughts on health inequities and disparities in COPD, uh, particularly the burden that is on these uh, unserved communities. So can you tell a little bit about uh, this and identifying COPD in this group and the impact of low socioeconomic status on this group of patients? Well, you know, it's, um, it's like every other chronic disease, Sydney. It's not an equal opportunity um, chronic condition, COPD, and it affects disadvantaged populations in disproportionate ways. One of the things we were really interested in looking at recently, though, was beyond cigarette smoking and beyond an individual person's life circumstances as far as their individual income and socioeconomic status, whether where someone lives, i.e. the neighborhood they live in, influences their risk of developing COPD. So we're fortunate to work in a study called the CARDIA study, which has been implemented since 1985. It recruited healthy adults in the United States in 1985 and has followed them for the next 35 years. It's really advantageous to follow people from young adulthood to later in life to see how and why they develop diseases. And one of the questions we wanted to ask was, whether the neighborhood someone lives in, in early adulthood, around age 25 to 35, whether that influences their risk of developing COPD independent of smoking and independent of their individual level socioeconomic status. That is to say, is there an implication for what they're exposed to in their neighborhoods that can actually impact their risk of future COPD? And perhaps not surprisingly, because we were asking the question, but 
magnifying the potential inequities, it really was true that people who lived in disadvantaged neighborhoods during this pivotal period of early adulthood were at greater risk of both future emphysema 15 to 20 years later, as well as incident COPD defined by airflow limitation on spirometry. Wow. I guess this was controlling for cigarette smoking. Uh, yeah. That yeah was, right, what you're right. saying is beyond this risk factor. You know, Ravi, uh, years ago when, when uh, we first began learning more and more about COPD and the gold guidelines first came out around 2001, uh, one of the things that it talked about is risk factors. And one of the risk factors I remember was diet and socioeconomic uh, status. So what do you think are the factors? Uh, you know, we're all concerned about vitamin D in our diets and so forth. Uh, what do you think was responsible for some of these, these discrepancies? Yeah, and it's an important question in that study. We don't have sort of the granular level, but there are, there are some obvious ones that I think are true. And then there's some other things we should think probably more carefully about. The, the obvious ones, it seems to me, are we know because of redlining, historical practices to create structural inequity in the United States, that people living in disadvantaged neighborhoods have poorer quality air to breathe than people who do not live in disadvantaged neighborhoods. They often are closer to highways, factories, industrial exposures. Not only that, people who live in those neighborhoods often work in manual jobs that have a variety of air a variety of indoor air exposures, factory jobs, cleaning products, various other things that probably create risk of COPD. Then you mentioned another one, Sid, that's really important is access to healthy diets. We haven't really proven the case about how a healthy diet impacts COPD risk specifically that I know about, but I'm pretty confident that healthy eating influences disease risk for a lot of chronic conditions, and chronic lung disease is probably not that different. And then a really interesting one that perhaps has been magnified for us in, in current terms with the COVID-19 pandemic is that people who live in disadvantaged neighborhoods with multi-generational homes or closer housing or more people in an individual home contract more respiratory infections. And repeated respiratory infections may be a risk factor for chronic lung disease. And Sid, I mean, you have lived through all of the iterations of British and Dutch hypotheses and things like that, but it's interesting to think how chronic infection might be back on the table or repeated infection may be back on the table as a risk factor for COPD. Surely. Uh, Ravi, did you have any blood work on these patients to compare? Uh, for example, uh, could you look at simple things like white blood counts or maybe C-reactive protein levels or anything to suggest that these patients who, uh, these individuals in the community who had more or more likely to have the COPD were somehow had this background of inflammation? We didn't do it in that analysis. Um, although in prior papers in the CARDIA study, actually we've documented that early life C-reactive protein is associated with greater COPD risk particularly in smokers. That is to say, the smokers who have this inflammatory phenotype are the most likely ones to develop COPD. Interestingly enough, and this is another different paper, we also reported that people who have respiratory symptoms at age 25 are at a lot greater risk of having emphysema 
15 to 20 years later compared to those who did not have respiratory symptoms independent of how much they smoke. So there are early life signs that probably, in my view, reflect ongoing other exposures that create risk, as well as, as you imply, the host factors of someone who is more apt to become inflamed or susceptible to future chronic lung disease. Let's shift to, uh, to a treatment and management of patients. Did you find a difference uh, in those and, uh, in U.S. urban care uh, settings as opposed to maybe others? I mean, how, how were they managed uh, any differently uh, than you may have been practicing in your university practice? Yeah. So, you know, we did an analysis in Chicago, which um, was really afforded by the modernization of the electronic health record, where we can look at people's patterns of care through merging of health records to see whether going to different health systems is associated with worse outcomes as far as care goes. And it turned out that among people living with COPD, those who have what we would term as fragmented care, that is to say, they go to multiple health systems to seek care, were much more likely to have hospitalizations for COPD, as well as moderate non-hospitalized COPD exacerbations than those who did not have fragmented care. That is, they sought care continuously with the same providers in the same practice. And that seems, I guess it seems semi-obvious. I mean, you tell me in, in some ways when you think about it, but it also isn't that obvious in the context of COPD, where I don't know that we have prioritized the background of providing consistent best medical care, whatever that looks like, i.e. the best prescription of inhalers, the repeated assessment of whether someone uses their inhaler correctly, and then also just the relationship with the consistent provider team that can ensure that the disease management is going well. I, it seems to me disease management is a term that has been around for a lot of chronic conditions, but COPD isn't necessarily one of them. Sure. You know, one of the things that I learned uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, <clears throat> there was a tremendous amount of research that was looking at an, another inner city population, New York City, uh, on health literacy. Uh, first studies in asthma and then looked at, looked at COPD and found that this was a very, very big, uh, imp important component of their care. Uh, the lack of uh, health uh, liter literacy. And w one of the things that uh, we, we try to do in COPD, as, as you know, is, is this partnership of care, perhaps action plans for exacerbations and so forth. Uh, how does this fit into your thoughts in terms of the, uh, this underserved community? Yeah, well, we need to do better. I think that much is clear. It's hard work though. I mean, it's really hard work to engage a patient in disease state education, one, the fundamentals are sort of just disease state education, and then two, the active management when exacerbations are one of the things. Because I, and my shifting on this has changed a little bit, but there's so many people who are conditioned throughout their life of living with chronic lung disease to live with flare-ups. That is just the day-to-day. -day. I had a flare-up, I plow ahead. And then among disadvantaged populations, 
where a day of missed work has immense consequences to socioeconomic well-being and overall well-being, or getting to a provider to be evaluated for an exacerbation is a major undertaking, it probably gets underdetected even more. And yet, we want to do better with the management of exacerbation. So that means strategies like you talk about, action plans, active engagement, having the the skill set, confidence, and self-efficacy to actually implement the use of early medication at the time of an exacerbation. The stakes couldn't be higher for underserved populations, yet engaging those populations is hard work, takes a lot of thought, and we haven't studied the best way to do that. What are your thoughts on uh, telehealth? What are your thoughts on using physician extenders in this high-risk population uh, to maybe get over some of the, the literacy, health, healthcare literacy issues? Uh, ha- have you tried them? Ha- do you think that's a good idea? Uh, where, where are you on this? Well, the use of physician extenders is critically important. I mean, I think we added a nurse practitioner, an advanced practice provider to our team with the target of helping people who have frequent exacerbations. And that's often the same overlap of disadvantaged populations, unfortunately. And I think it's helped. I think the very idea that this is someone's job to help us do better with the highest risk individuals has been a breakthrough for us as far as the resource allocation. Telehealth is a challenge for a variety of reasons, but one of them is people accessing telehealth. Accessing care is easier if you're in your home, perhaps, than getting to a health center, but there's a whole lot of technology still required in a home that is required to access telehealth resources. So I've struggled with, with telehealth in a variety of ways as far as an equalizer or you know an equity measure. Um, and I think resourcing it appropriately and understanding people's ability to interface with systems and access it is a, is a thing that we're going to have to crack the case on to really make it um, equitable. In your cardiac uh, lung study, uh, did you look at CAT scans on these uh, in, in this community? Uh, looking for emphysema, early airway signs in this group of people. And do you think that maybe having this information might be a way for intervention uh, in, in this group? Yeah. Well, in cardiolung, we actually were noticing that Black individuals in cardia had much more emphysema on CT scans than white individuals in cardia. Cardia is a population 50% black at enrollment and 50% white in the US. And at the same time, we didn't see very big differences in their lung function. So more emphysema, yet no big differences in their lung function as far as percent predicted values go. So we did an analysis where we actually asked the question whether the race-based normalization of spirometric values was resulting in introducing a structural inequity that resulted in black people who have emphysema being considered normal. And it was shockingly the case that the race normalization resulted in lots of black people with emphysema being called normal. And if we applied non-race-based spirometric prediction equations, i.e. took the white equations and applied them to everyone, there was a discrepancy in the rates of emphysema and the rates of COPD, airflow obstruction. 
And it really called into question, you know, for me, how there are probably lots of patients living who do lung function testing, have a disease, and because of historic practices we've used in the respiratory community to use race standards for spirometry, where you say, oh, well, your lung function's normal, when it could not be more normal. It's only normal because we've accepted lower values as normal, but the lower values are probably due to a population in the U.S. that has been historically disadvantaged due to structural racism. So all that to say, I'm really pleased that we're moving away in the pulmonary community from race normalizing lung function equations, because I think it introduces more inequity to the diagnosis of COPD. Excellent. One last quick question. Uh, you found emphysema in this group. Uh, what about uh, airway changes, small airway changes? Do, do these patients have inflammatory bronchiolitis uh, in addition to their, their emphysema, or was it just uh, this, this, the destructive changes that you noted? And that study said it's a good question. We actually didn't do systematic airways analyses. We really just hung it on emphysema. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, this has been wonderful, and I really applaud you for the work you are doing in this community. It's uh, obviously, it needs a lot of attention uh, that you're starting to give to this community. Thank you. Robbie, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been just great. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Sidney Brayman and Ravi Callan, and to Sean Mullen for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.